1: Hey, everybody. How are we doing? Surprise, surprise. A loud voice from beyond. H.P. Lovecraft was a horror writer who died in the late 30s, I believe. 37. And he was, in his own time, not very well known, but much later, um, roughly in the 70s and then 80s and continuing on until now, his works have become really quite important. Some people, including Stephen King, call him the godfather of horror which is uh, interesting because Stephen King's style is mostly quite different than H.P. Than Lovecraft's. But still, I would agree with the statement. And George R. Martin is no exception. He is heavily influenced by H.P. Lovecraft, and Song of Ice and Fire is full of little nuggets um, from his work. And uh, Emmett and I have pulled a lot of these references out and prepared to talk about them, and we'll save a little time at the end for questions.
0: So, yeah, so the basic kind of tropes in Lovecraft, it's the subgenre of horror known as cosmic horror, where the characters are dealing with... Entities and forces that are supposed to be beyond the human imagination, or in some way designed to make you feel small or mortal, or just kind of break your sanity entirely. So it's less less about monsters you try to kill, and more about the kind of the dreadful knowledge of the creatures themselves. Kind of the core of a uh, Lovecraft's influence, and you kind of see that spilling out. I mean, at this point, kind of the Lovecraft world isn't even really restricted to the stuff he wrote. We're talking about, you know, the art and the architecture and the movies and the other books that have been heavily influenced by him in some ways, you know, taking his ideology and expanding it. Um, and also needs to acknowledge that Lovecraft was himself a really heinous bigot who was a lot of his, the kind of the power of the repulsion he would imbue his creatures with was drawn from his own personal feelings about jewish people and black people and other people he considered lesser and that's something that anyone who's a fan of lovecraftian fiction or lovecraft in general has to kind of wrestle with because not just not just that he was a bigot himself but that the emotional catharsis in his work was driven to a large degree by his bigotry so when you read those books you are experiencing his revulsion so that's that can be a powerful experience but also a really troubling one and that's something you have to reckon with when dealing with any kind of lovecraftian fiction but as we'll get into i think martin's aware of that and kind of folding that into the way he uses Lovecraftian tropes
1: absolutely I think the uh, main if you were to say there's a such thing as a Lovecraftian trope it would be that he takes this as Emmett says this revulsion and kind of channels it into um, his vision of the universe where many people Some religious people in general would often say that the universe is generally benevolent. Other people, maybe skeptics, others would say that the universe is neutral. H.P. Lovecraft thinks the universe is evil, like it's actively out to get you. (laughs) It's a common feature of of it. And very typically the characters in his short stories, most of his stories were were short, don't die. They don't um, suffer some gruesome death. Instead, they figure out some... Truth uh, that is too horrible to to process, and it
0: drives them mad, and that's where they're left. <laughs> exactly. The kind of classic story in this regard is uh, The Call of Cthulhu, which is structured as a kind of nested story where the protagonist is increasingly finding, you know, clues that lead to this part of the story and this diary entry and this small statue. So the overall structure of the story is built around this search for knowledge and what's awaiting the protagonist at the end of it. And, you know, one of the interesting kind of spins on it is he's presenting... You know, gigantic tentacled monsters with a bunch of eyes and like a shape you can't even figure out with Euclidean geometry, but they're not being presented as aliens really. They're not being presented I mean, sometimes in Lovecraft influenced fiction they are, but at the core of what he was getting at is that no, the universe belongs to these creatures. And that, yeah. that that they are at the core of what we're of existence and what we know, um, and that, you know, we are we are kind of just leaving off the backs of the old ones. We are just kind of the the parasites that kind of run around on their back, and that's the kind of revelation he was going for a lot of the time.
1: It's uh, he at one point uses the the term or the number rather that they're vigintillion years old. Some of these beings, which I don't, that's a lot. I don't know how many zeros that is, but it's a lot. So they're way older than humanity. And this to transition into a song of ice and fire this whole concept of finding out a horrible truth of reality that you can't, first of all, can't bear. Second of all, that you can't tell anyone else about because they won't believe you. It's too insane, too out there for someone to process. Even if they wanted to believe it, it, it's just the way our brains work. We can't accept things, you know, especially something so fantastical just because someone told us. And consider the prologue To a song of ice and fire that's very much if that were a standalone story just that prologue with will and garrett and sir waymar royce that would be a lovecraftian short story they find out an ancient a truth that shouldn't be that the others really exist and that they're back that shouldn't be that the dead are walking that shouldn't be shouldn't be happening and an experienced ranger 40-year veteran who Gior mormon calls one of his best doesn't even warn anybody about it. The brothers that he served with along this whole time, this experience freaks him out so much that he, f- he flees knowing, knowing full well that he'll be executed for doing it. And just consider the frame of mind that he has to be in to do, to make those decisions. Decisions, they're not even really decisions anymore at that point. It's just pure raw fear. And uh, he's reduced to his most base emotion. And that is the essence of H.P. Lovecraft. So, Right there at the beginning, George is uh, is diving right in. Now, of course, that, you know, it, the story moves on to less Lovecraftian things, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's a great way to kick it off.
0: Exactly. And it's always under the surface. I think it's a great example. You know, Garrett is this, presented in the prologue, is this very experienced, wise ranger who's been through, you know, some insane stuff. Like he lost his ears in the blizzard. He talks about the intensity of winter north of the wall. Like, you know, this isn't, he's not a green, shallow, inexperienced ranger. But what he sees drives him completely mad and he just runs and he doesn't like uh as he said he doesn't warn anybody he doesn't he doesn't even have that moment in the show where like he murmurs about the white walkers in his last moments to Ned. he's just he's gone and i think it's john who says that he's he was dead from fear yeah he was, like that. his eyes you could see it in And his it was eyes. just yeah he was just gone behind the eyes and that's a core element to a lot of cosmic horror and like, as you said, that immediately, you know, the plot immediately moves on to much more political matters and Robert shows up at Winterfell and then Bran falls and like, you know, our attention is elsewhere. But it's, that's always under the surface. It's always supposed to be in the back of your mind, especially in that first book, but throughout the series that underneath everything, underneath all these machinations, the monsters are waiting for you. And that's the core of a lot of Lovecraft and the fiction he influences that this is what's lurking behind the scenes, behind everything you do.
1: If you take the knowledge that the Children of the Forest made the others then it's sort of a a similar connection they're not nearly as ancient as you know vigintillion years but the children of the forest you know it was like this was on all theirs you know in this case humanity's kind of has more power over them than, say, any human in Lovecraft stories have over, say, the Deep Ones or the Old Ones. But it's at least a, a loose parallel of they're tr- kind of trying to take it back. It's like, no, this is ours. We've this is this is our property. You know, humans have just been more successful with their ice wall, <laughs> things like that, to hold back the uh, these ancient evil things.
0: Absolutely, and it extends. You know, you, so you've got the Others as kind of this Lovecraftian force in terms of their menace, in terms of their structure in the story. But if you want to look for, you know, more kind of imagery and history that is really clearly specifically influenced by the kind of imagery and history Lovecraft was riffing on, then you look at uh, some of the things that have come up in World of Ice and Fire regarding the history of this planet and how not just the children and the others, but there are multiple magical species that crisscrossed this planet that ran every aspect of it that left huge parts of their legacy behind. And a lot of the kind of monuments of humanity are. In some cases, literally built on the legacy they left behind. The classic example being the High Tower. You know, the High Tower is on one level this monument to human achievement or, you know, the brand, the Builder's Achievement. And it's a, it's a pl- mark of pride for the overproud High Towers in the center of Old Town, this great bustling city. But at the base of it is the black, oily stone labyrinth that the World of Ice and Fire suggests was built by the Deep Ones. And you know, this is, you know, kind of underpinning again everything in human society. So the, the Deep Ones, World of Ice and Fire strongly suggests. Are one of these ancient races that the when what the ironborn worship, what they call the drowned god, is really kind of this you know distorted memory through time and the fog of ideology of a real being, but it's not a humanoid creature that damp thinks of that is interested in your future and cares about the old way and wants to let the ironborn, but that it's really a giant monster underneath the waves who you know may have mated with humanity to some extent and produced the race called the Deep Ones, who have left these black, oily stone monuments all over the world. And they are
1: ancient. Like, the city of Ashai is made from an oily, black stone. The city of Yeen in Southorios is similarly constructed. Um, and <clears throat> these are described as so ancient that no one could possibly date them. It's uh, just a similar feel to the uh, the Lovecraft world. And as far as the... the made, I mean, there's some... The Ironborn are the perfect perfect example there's so much involved with them that has lovecraft written all over it I and mean, what is dead may never die is just almost a straight line from from lovecraft <laughs> and it's a wonderful homage it fits really well too that's it describes them really well and it just makes them their religion a bit creepy uh, they are creepy so it fits <laughs> and you there's that's they're they always been considered kind of a people apart their blood is a little different um, and so there's a suggestion that they have some of this in them as well. Some of this ancient, very, very, very old connection.
0: You've got a Dagan Cod, I believe is his name, who is described as intensely fish-like in terms of his features. Elsewhere in Westeros, you've got the Legends of the Squishers that Nimble Dick relates in Crack Club Point. And again, I think that's monsters related through time. like that, The way that the Snarks and the Grunkins are clearly just the others that have been filtered into fairy stories over time. Same deal with the Squishers. That's just an ancient you know cultural memory of the deep ones that has kind of turned into this children's story over the course of the centuries but it's still buried beneath and like as you said the point of it is that you don't even know how old these artifacts are because they're just beyond your comprehension and ability to calculate and that's that you know your ignorance in the face of that is the point is what's being aimed at that there, you know humanity has built this world on top of this ancient structure doesn't really fully understand and can't fully understand in terms of the ironborn absolutely i mean even just in terms of the setting, Lovecraft often sets his uh, stories in, like, really run-down, depressed port towns full of, like, depressed sailors and, like, really obnoxious people and, like, ex-killers and, like, you know, these are the people who've gone out and seen the monsters and, like, this is the place they're now living in. So, yeah, the Ironborn chapters, especially in Feast, very much have that feel, this kind of, you know, dry and dismal veil, as Dan Per calls it. it is often where these kind of, these stories are rooted.
1: Yeah, and then he kind of turns it up a notch in, we won't spoil the Forsaken chapter other than to mention this brief little bit, but there's uh, an image, a vision, sort of, that uh, Aaron Greyjoy sees of a face that's basically Cthulhu. It's a description of a face with tentacles, and it's... Well, what famous face with tentacles do we all know? Exactly. <laughs> Some exactly. days he's now cute and green, but, you know, the original version was a little more terrifying. <laughs> exactly.
0: And again, yeah, not to spoil any specifics, but the context of that image as it's presented to Damper in that chapter is being framed as a as a rebuke to the idea of the humanized round God. Within that chapter, it's, there's the dynamic set up between Euron and Aaron that Euron is trying to force aaron to realize that this god you believe in does not actually exist that he's a lie he's just a voice in your head telling you what you want to hear and the real thing i.e me from his perspective is a giant tentacle monster that just wants to rule you and so you get this intense religious dynamic that's rooted in the characters but also is reflective of this larger backstory and is as he's pointed out that's like that's not even a influence from lovecraft that's a direct explicit rip of his imagery and for i think used for great purpose
1: yeah he he goes else, you know, everything else is very different, but those, those core elements are rooted in in Lovecraft. And this is something that really spreads around a lot, around the world, because George has given us a very large world. A lot of it is never going to have anything to do with the main story. Maybe someday there'll be stories set in some of these places, who knows? But he, a, a, a kind of a funny anecdote that he himself gives is that it's been done in fantasy as far as naming. You can't just go with another mountains of the mist or misty mountains or misty this that. It just it's all these basic names have been done, so you have to kind of invent thing, new words. And eventually George in some spots, the really distant ones, he starts just grabbing Lovecraft names and just using them cuz ah, he's never going to put them in the story anyway. He just wants to give, you know, homages. Apparently he wants to give a lot of homages. But we have a we have a list and it's it's pretty extensive. There's a Kadath, there's a Grey Waste, there and these are extremely far to the east. I mean farther than the length of Westeros. Like two Westeros is in, you know, Wall to Dorn length away with a huge mountain range in between. And there's uh, Quite a few others, the the religion, I think, is one of the places he, he inserts it the most because, of course, one of the main Lovecraft aspects is these ancient beings that people worship as gods because they're so ancient. So, of course, that fits in really well with a lot of the religions that are around the world. Uh, for example, the Black Goat of Cahor. The Black Goat is a direct rip from Lovecraft as well. As is the Church of Starry Wisdom, which is a popular port religion around all around the world, not just in a specific location. There's a there's a Church of Starry Wisdom in uh, Old Town. There's uh, several in Essos, There's just plenty of them all over the place.
0: And absolutely, and as, as he's pointed out, that like you know these are not presented as locations we're ever going to go to, not presented as locations we're ever going to learn much about. But he wants us to know that they're there. He wants us to know that you know that Westeros is this big, and that you know the rest of the world is so vast and encompasses these places full of horrors we'll never learn about but they're just as much a part of this world as the part we're more familiar with, and that, you know, we should contextualize this world within that. That, you know, that's these are the roots of this world, and anything that's not that is kind of just under siege by it, basically. That, again, this world, at some level, belongs to the maze-makers and the Deep Ones and the Children of the Forest, and we are tourists. Then they could be back
1: at any moment. Uh, so uh, one of my personal favorites, in the as far as references go, is... The story of the, the doom that came to Sarnath, which is uh, one of Lovecraft's earlier ones, I believe, and in the doom that came to Sarnath, Sarnath is a is a ruined city in uh, near I believe either in or near the Dithraki Sea. Uh, no, it's uh, former the former cities of the uh, the Sathi, the um, Sarnori, and they were a great, powerful kingdom. You know, contemporary with the Valyrians uh, for a long time, and maybe didn't quite match them but they were up you know up on that level they certainly weren't the valerians didn't conquer them or anything and this in the lovecraft story there's a uh, beings called uh, in a city called ib which of course is you know ibn is a, a, a port city um an islands an island nation in the far north above essos and the story is that there are these beings that worship a giant toad maybe not a toad it's it's toad like a kind of Creepy amphibious being of uncertain aspect, but they worship this being and the nearby people. Sarnathi are not pleased with this, and eventually, one day, they just go attack and slaughter everyone. All these worshipers of this thing, and 10,000 years later, they, you know, after this, these people have forgotten what they did and the evil that they, they, uh, inflicted on these, you know, weird but innocent beings, the, they came back and destroyed the town in one night so in in that story we have ib we have sarnath both of which appear in the song of ice and fire we have the concept of the doom which of course is much different than the doom of valyria but it has the same effect by just completely ruining this civilization permanently and it also has the imagery of this giant toad-like aspect creature that they were worshiping of which George decided to put one of these in uh, one of the Basilisk Isles. I believe it's one of the Basilisk Isles, north of Sothorius. And there's just a big 40 foot toad idol there that people apparently used to worship. And yeah, how about that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's some sort of mixed turtle toad with a tail and wings. And yeah, just add things on at, at, at your leisure. <laughs>
0: exactly. And he has, as he's noted, like, you know, a lot of this is rooted in religion and how both Lovecraft and Martin approach religion, I think is interesting. You know, Lovecraft was kind of struggling with how to kind of integrate this kind of consciousness and approach to history and the roots of the world with, with a more spiritual aspect. I think Martin is... You know, he's got so many characters who are struggling with religious doubt and a god who doesn't speak to them or speaks in mysterious ways. And I think this kind of plays into that. Again, you've got Dampair who rebuilt his life, he says, around the mighty pillar of the drowned god after his, his abuse and what he went through at Euron's hands. But as I said, you know, the, he's there's pretty clearly no one actually speaking to Dampere. Like what the a prophet of the drowned god actually looks like is Patchface. I mean, Patchface was under the water for a couple days. Crescent says he's got no idea how he survived. When he pulled out, he was cold. And now he's completely lost his mind, except that he can spout pure, unadulterated prophecy. He predicts the Red Wedding, he predicts the Blackwater, there's a couple other examples. And I think there's supposed to be a contrast there with, you know, damp hair is what official, you know, religion looks like. It's what the, you know, religion as a human system looks like. You have your priests and they have their role and they have their part in society and they want to increase that role and they fight that role and they're part of politics. And Patchface is what, like, the the unadulterated strain of, religious power actually looks like when it's at work. And it's you know, it's potent and powerful, but it's also not something a human brain can take.
1: Even Melisandre is freaked out by Patchface, mm-hmm. just to give just to give a little reference there. Yeah. And <clears throat> certainly the reference the with the Ironborn and the, the drowned god in the watery halls and Patchface maybe witnessing all this, there is, or at least being imbued with whatever you want to call it, that allows him to do this. There's this um this ties to the story of um, which one is it the uh, well can the name escapes me at the moment but, but there's several instances of lovecraft where there are beings that have this sort of hybrid blood of the ancient deep ones and it very slowly manifests itself and uh, there is the same sort of concept is happening within the uh, Ironborn religion, as well as maybe what Patchface is "quote unquote" witnessed, where the main one of these main in one particular example, the main character of this Lovecraft story is eventually. First of all, he's terrified that he discovers that this is happening to him, and but eventually, as he grow, it grows more within him, and as these aspects become more part of him, he's looked forward to it. Yeah. yeah he, he ex- oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's the Shadow of instrument That's right. And I can't believe I couldn't think of that. (laughs) And so he's, but eventually he looks forward to it. He's like, I want to go beneath the waves and live with my ancient people who are there forever and and be joyous. And it really sounds like what the ironborn are talking about when they drink and and feast forever in the halls of the drowned god. It's very, very similar.
0: Um, Absolutely. And, you know, to thinking about how the ironborn perceive it, to bring it back around to kind of the the racism driving a lot of uh, Lovecraft's works. I think for me, what's part of so interesting about the kind of Lovecraftian canon that I mentioned of the other works that have kind of grown up around these tropes is how many of them kind of use the, the powerful, vivid imagery and themes, but use them to kind of interrogate and critique the racism that was behind them. And I think that's exactly what George Warren was doing with The Ironborn. That you have, you know, the Ironborn are connected to these older powers, to these, this crazy imagery, to these artifacts. But the ironborn themselves as a people have constantly screwed themselves over because of their insane supremacist fantasies that they can't make work in the real world and make it impossible to coexist with their neighbors. So you have Martin using the, the tropes and imagery but pointing out that if you actually take Lovecraft's racism along with them and try to use that in the real world, that your life will not only be violent and immoral but just silly and stupid. That It's, it's not satisfactory for the Ironborn. <laughs> This supremacy isn't based on anything, and that they keep clinging to it not only hurts their neighbors but ultimately hurts themselves because eventually the rest of Westeros keeps getting pissed off and comes and kicks all their asses. So, you know, it's I think it's a critique of what drove of the ideology that's behind the Lovecraft imagery, and I think Martin is trying to critique and poke fun at that while at the same time recognizing the power of the imagery and themes that it produced, which is a tough balancing act. But I I think that's what he's trying to do with the Ironborn.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree. There's a few other spots where he's inserted the, the uh, love crafting, love crafting, <laughs> crafted with love and <laughs> and terror. <laughs> there, for example, some other spots in the world where he's populated with uh, basically direct parallels or just straight using the same names. There are old ones apparently living in Lang or were living in Lang, probably still are. Let's be honest, they're probably still there, and the current modern state of lang is that these beings have been sealed below for a while they were sort of they were like ways into the earth and people would you know vanish and uh, so eventually they said hey let's not have those holes open anymore let's let's shut those doors forever because they don't seem to come out and if they did well that wouldn't be good uh, there's a there's a chilling moment in the mountains of madness uh which is his longest work where they're they've discovered first of all an ancient city in in Antarctica which shouldn't be there. It's a lot sort of like Yeen or Ashi, uh, maybe more like Yin because Yin is completely unpopulated. Uh, although Yin doesn't have any large penguin creatures like uh, Mountains of Madness does. But there's a as they're exploring these really these tunnels beneath the earth that are so ancient that they can't judge how old they are. They shouldn't be possible it dawns on them that these aren't tunnels in they're tunnels out something has come out <laughs> of the center of the earth and that's far more terrifying and this is what i think we have at lang and now now there's almost no reason to think the story will ever go to lang but it's just super fun that george decided to insert that in there and have these <laughs> these ancient evil beings that uh, just lurk beneath the surface all over the planet <laughs>
0: Exactly. And like we said at the start, you know, I think that that, that's ultimately supporting the others in terms of their role in the narrative. That's that's what they are more than anything else, this kind of ancient power that drives you nuts just looking at them. That's kind of beneath the surface and now is coming to reclaim the planet and humanity has to decide, you know, how to handle it. So it's an interesting combination of, you know... That low kind of Lovecraftian enemy, but it's in the, within the construct of a high fantasy narrative. So the human response to it is not going to be to go mad, or at least our hero's response to it is not going to be to go mad, but to try to confront it. So I think that I think both of those elements will elevate each other.
1: Should we talk about Euron a little bit in The Long Night?
0: Sure. I mean, yes. You've got a uh, you got Euron Greyjoy, who's a character. If you look at the Forsaken again, not to spoil it too heavily, but he's strongly connected with these kind of imagery and themes. And even before the Forsaken, in A Feast for Crows, if you know, he's introduced talking about how he's been all over the world. He's seen all these people worshipping to their different gods, asking for their different things. You know, asking for protection from from the horse lords, from the slavers, from Euron himself, and that he's you know, basically been spending his time proving to all of them that their gods aren't listening to them, that if their gods exist, they are simply monsters like him and have no concern for their lives. Uh, when he shows up at the king's mood, it's, it's kind of a similar deal. He kind of interrupts this intensely political fight, this kind of, the Vampire describes it as an anthill of people just fighting each other over their future, and he interrupts it with the with dragon Dragonrider with this kind of avatar of cosmic horror. And the way it's written is intensely... Which is hellish and memorable and lush and vivid that he describes it as sharp as a sword thrust the horn blast and it fills the whole veil, and Dampere calls it the horn of hail, and it's just reverberating and its glyphs are glowing, and it's just this intense, terrifying, magical moment. And Euron is kind of you know, he's kind of acting as an emissary of this kind of writing of this kind of genre, that it's its kind of tropes and imagery kind of have come with him into the story, and he's kind of sparking that.
1: Right, if you recall the earlier mention of of Aaron perceiving him as having a, basically the face of Cthulhu, uh, if you combine that thought with the notion of the Long Night, which is possibly something Euron himself will have a big part in triggering or helping along, if you think of it that way, consider that along the lines of Cthulhu, you know, waiting beneath the waves, when he rises again, the world will be unmade. That's a lot like the Long Night imagery. It's a very similar concept of just world-changing development that's
0: entirely negative. <laughs> and Euron's the one character who would look at that and think he could profit from it and make himself break from it and kind of join the ranks of these creatures. I think yeah, that's what Euron's overall trajectory and goal is in the story is to kind of... He's like he's... He got this vision, this sense of humanity. Again, as these kind of s- small, pathetic creatures scurrying around on a monster's world, and his response to that is, "Okay, then I should join the monsters. That's clearly the only possible solution to this. Otherwise, I'm just—it's like the the machine, and hitchhiker's guide that like pulls back to show you how small you are in the universe. Mm-hmm. Like that's something that <laughs> you know most brains just can't deal with. And you're- the way Euron's brain kind of broke in response to that was a desire to join the ranks, of the monsters who helped build the world.
1: Yeah, he, he. instead of being terrified at the fact that this is what the world is like, that the gods aren't real, that they're monsters, imagine that he has come to this realization. And instead of it freaking him out, he's like, huh, I can work with this. You know, (laughs) this is my thing. I think I can deal with that. Like, if this is what it is, if the world is just full of monster creatures that, you know, they're bent on pure evil, then, hey, I'm going to join. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Like where Bran cried out in terror when he saw the Heart of Winter. And, of course, Martin didn't even describe what it was he saw. It was just so much to make Bran scream and cry. And, you know, I think if, when Euron saw something like that, he's, his cry would be one of wonder, rather than
1: terror. He's <laughs> like, yeah, that's cool. And he, to kind of attach himself to and to kind of godify himself, to deify himself, he's tapped into all these ancient relics and ancient traditions. The whole notion of a god-king is something that we see in the far east of uh, planetos, teros, earth, whatever you want to call it. And he certainly claims to have been that far out. He claims to have been to Ashai and all these faraway places, and for the most part, he's probably telling the truth. And that is a lot of where he learned all this. It's kind of going to these cities of the far east where we talked about a lot of this... Lovecraft lore is where George put it, so uh, you can imagine that he picked up lots of different pieces of it, and it just continued to appeal to him. He's like, "Yeah, this is; these guys have it figured out. First of all, wreck everything, then make everyone worship you, then yeah, see, prophet. then profit. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Wait, is that profit? P H E T or
0: <laughs> both?
1: Ayo. Okay, so other authors, especially, um, more notably, the contemporaries to Lovecraft, who he was friends with, and some who writ- wrote maybe shortly after his death, or around the same time. There are certainly lots of people that have written you know, in the Lovecraft world now, but back early on when he was un- not very well known, there were a few other authors who gave homage to him in his own time. Particularly important was Robert E. Howard, who was the creator of Conan, uh, and... The character Bittersteel is very much an analog of Conan. He looks a lot like him. He's not nearly as badass because Conan is ridiculously badass. But Bittersteel is pretty darn badass. Bittersteel is a more realistic badass, I think. <laughs> but, but Conan, that's a, and the, the actual, that Blackstone reference that Emmett made earlier re, as far as the base of the Hightower, that's actually a, um, Robert E. Howard story called The Blackstone. And one of the, you know, just, Meant to throw this out earlier, but for folks who aren't familiar, one of the best things about Lovecraft is, and this also refers to his other, what his earlier point about how you have to square his the the fact that he himself was a bad bad guy had very uh, awful beliefs, is that his estate's not making any money off of anything. He died uh, poor and not very old in, in bad health. And so he's not benefiting in any way from, from any of this. So that's one thing that kind of helps me square it a little bit. But the other nice benefit of that is all of his stuff is public domain. You you shouldn't really pay for his work unless somebody puts together a nice nice collection. It looks nice. They put some nice artwork into it. You know, that might that's worth paying for. But you can get... The Black Stone for free. You can just download all the Conan books, all the Robert E. Howard. It's all public domain because it's so old. So, that's a nice, nice little side effect there. You can just kind of, a lot of it's just for free on Kindle. Um, Anyway, so Robert E. Howard, uh, also in the story of the Black Stone, there's a a character who discovers this um, ancient place that's maybe tainted, and people have visions uh, or dreams perhaps of what maybe something that happened in ancient times. And um, without telling too much of the story, there's uh, uh, these beings, these humans, that worshipped a toad-like sort of, I think it was called Sugwath. I, I don't know how to pronounce these things. No, you can't pronounce any Lovecraft things, really. Cthulhu is just how people say it. It's supposed to be You know, a human attempt to pronounce something unpronounceable. So uh, never worry about how you pronounce these things. <laughs>
0: You know, the faceless men, uh, like you say, they have this kind of intense connection to like trying to see the god behind all the gods and trying to make these connections about what's really going on behind the scenes. So there is that kind of same stripping away of your illusions to reveal the the face beneath. So I I, I think that's definitely a good point.
1: Yeah, here you go. I guess that makes Cereal Pharrell is a real Lovecraftian there. There's only (laughs) one god. He's the god of death. In the Call of Cthulhu, some of the men are driven mad by seeing Cthulhu, but others are already on their way to madness by seeing masonry at angles that shouldn't be possible. You look at it and it's convex, you look at it again, it's concave, and it just doesn't, you can't process it. And that's part of the insanity. And it's just part of the genius of Lovecraft is to take these concepts and mess with them uh, as a way of perception. It's really beyond the normal style of, of you know, perceptual uh, phenomenon. And it's really creative. And so... I totally agree the Bridge of Dreams in A Dance with Dragons this is to remind people this is the spot where Tyrion encounters the stone men and they pass the same spot twice and it's just one of these most puzzling unexplained moments in all of the Song of Ice and Fire it's like that shouldn't be possible and that's what they say too <laughs> it's one of one of the characters Ysella or Yandri I forget which one says this shouldn't be and Ysella and Yandri are experienced on the river so it's not even you know, it's To them, it's even incredible. So I'm not really sure what George was doing there, but it, Jim's point is strong. It stands out, and it is absolutely has a, a Lovecraft feel to it. I didn't catch that one before. That's good. B- Blood Raven is certainly, um, and this ties into some of the, the sacrifice aspect that Jim mentioned as well, there's a lot of creepiness around the old gods, the, the ancient ways that, that a lot of which have uh, kind of died out, which maybe are brand through brands visions we're seeing again and there's all this yeah there's all there's there seems to be a a theme of blood and you know sacrifice straight up and there's there's a lot of that in in uh in Lovecraft as well certain some of these hybrid beings and these other creatures that uh, and these cultists they uh have been known to do things like that and to offer human sacrifice
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, I kind of come down the middle on Bloodraven. I think his ends are overall pretty good. I don't think he's aligned with the others in any sense. But I think his means are often uh, pretty destructive. I think that holds both his hand and Greenseer. I think we're supposed to kind of tug our collar at a lot of stuff Bloodraven does. And it's because he's treading into this really dark, creepy territory where he can unleash powers he doesn't fully understand or control. So I think there is overall a kind of human meddling with stuff-you-don't-understand theme going on in Bloodraven. That's definitely tied to Lovecraft and Cosmic Horror in general. And maybe
1: indirectly related to that, if you think about the cave system that they explore down there, mm. super, super vast and ancient, yeah, stuff just really creepy. Yeah. There's just, like, half-tree people and yeah. just these caverns of with stalactites that look like bone and just this vast river that's black and, you know, endless there you go <laughs> fits <Exactly>. right in <laughs> and what's
0: going on in that caves and this is kind of uncomfortable to think about is that you know brand is possessing hodor to walk around and explore so from hodor's perspective in that moment the nightmarish monster god is brand
1: yeah, i mean he's that's uh, why are you making me walk through this stuff Bran. i don't want to see this <laughs> but in
0: those moments that that's what hodor experiencing and that's the person who's causing it to him so it's almost as if we're seeing from the pov of one of of one of these creatures and it's 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 intense yeah Sure. I think Call of Cthulhu is a good starting point. Yeah, it's a, it's it's really well structured. Um, it gets you kind of into the lore without uh, throwing you too headfirst into the names and the kind of backstory of it. And It kind of really roots you in the you know, kind of the gradual pacing and the gradual revelation, and as you said, kind of the multiple ways that this kind of world drives you mad before you get to the end. And it it emphasizes that the point is the call that you you kind of get wrapped up in it, and you have to keep going, and you need to learn more. And eventually that's what breaks you. So yeah, I would definitely, I mean, we've mentioned a couple of the great ones, but yeah, I would recommend that as a starting
1: point. One of the things that George R. R. Martin uh, has captured that we, uh, a lot of us have really fallen in love with is the world building. He's done a fantastic job of creating a world that's full of these creepy things and these realistic things and these different societies and cultures and with long histories. And that is a big part of Lovecraft is his world building is, is quite good. Um, there's you get little except that you get little bits and pieces of it. You don't get nearly as much as you want to, but uh, the short story. Each of these little short stories, a lot of times you can find little small things. Um, Call of Cthulhu is an excellent starting point. I think if you if if you want to try a shorter one, because that one is one of the longer. ones. It's not long. I mean, oh, you, song of, by a song of ice and fire standards, they're they're all short they're stories. They're all pretty tasty. That's true, <laughs> but. But I believe the Mountains of Madness is 180 pages, and that's his longest. So they're they're mostly they're mostly a lot t- they're mostly pretty tight. And his style is very I would maybe dense is too negative of a word, but he fits he packs a lot into a sentence. It's really crazy. The Color Out of Space is another one that I would really recommend. That one's yeah, that's a great choice. That might that's in my top three favorites. <laughs> really fun. Rats in the Walls is excellent too. Now, one other recommendation, not as far as stories themselves, but there is a podcast that I'm a big fan of called the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. And they have since moved on to other stories because they went through all of the Lovecraft stories. But um, along the way... They did a lot of uh, audio recordings of full stories, full readings, like professionally done by a couple. Some of these readers are just fantastic. They have like the really kind of almost Vincent Price ish graveness to them, where it's like as he's and he could he could talk about eating breakfast and it sounds like the world's going to end, you know? Like...
0: Yeah, Kyvern definitely kind of accesses that that part of the Lovecraftian horror, and I think it's interesting that. Uh, he's presented as this kind of nice, jovial guy who everyone likes, but is secretly has the key to this kind of horror, and that's kind of how he he enables it and makes it happen. Um, I think, again, with Cersei, you have the case of someone who, you know, it's the careful what you wish for, because you might get it problem with her. I think she was, she wanted a monster, basically. And you can kind of see that even before she meets Kyburn, that she, Jamie isn't quite enough anymore, Tywin isn't around to kind of be, filter her stuff through. She's 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 always wanted something like this. Something like Robert Strong has kind of always been what she desires most, some kind of champion she can kind of unleash on her enemies because she feels like her gender keeps her from doing it herself. I think that's kind of how she's thought about Jamie for a long time. It's how she's thought about, you know, agents like the Kettleblacks. But I think, you know, Robert Strong for is the kind of the ultimate avatar of that. And I think it's... I think it's really fitting that, like you know, Tywin's monster is the living Gregor Clegane, and then when Cersei (laughs) takes over his regime and kind of starts destroying it from within, her monster is the corpse of Gregor (laughs) Clegane. I think that that fits her character perfectly.
1: This question has led me to a new thought, which I think we talked about how Euron has saw the saw what was real, saw the truth, and embraced it rather than it terrifying him. This might be a parallel to Randolph Carter who is oh, gone, who saw the truth. He's the only Lovecraft character who sees the tr- the reality beyond the curtain, which is terrifying to everyone else, and he join- ends up joining it and being a part of it. He pops up here and there in other stories as sort of a, someone not human anymore. He's become a demigod of sorts, and that he's not cruel and sadistic like Euron, but he does see the terrifying truth, and it doesn't break him, and he seeks to join it, which... uh. Yeah. Good job, panel. You taught awesome. me something.
0: Exactly. So you mentioned Khyber, just real quick, I think it's worth noting that like, you know, you have in Old Town you have this dynamic of like, you know, the crazy history underneath and and the artifacts, but then on top of that you have the Archmasters who are determined that none of this is real, that if it was real they've wiped it out, and they kind of stuck their heads in the sand as far as the, the, the rising tide of magic. And that's also something in Lovecraft and Cosmic Horror is the, the, the skeptics and the rationalists are generally cast as the enemy. Um, or is the people who are actively suppressing, which is a common thing in fantasy, usually in fantasy, you know, the people telling the old stories are right, and the modernist teachers are wrong. But there's a special element of cosmic horror that the the skeptics and rationalists are not just anti-magic, that they're specifically at war with magic, and trying to suppress the knowledge of it. And you definitely see that with the Archmaesters. And that fits with Qyburn, of course, because he went rogue. I think just like the, uh,
1: just like in the Lovecraft stories, they're gonna lose. (laughs) (laughs) They're not gonna stop the Long Night.
0: I think he'll get close. I think a lot of the characters, a lot of our main characters at this point in the story are kind of teetering on the verge of the Abyss and kind of embracing their worst self. That's not just with Bran, but also with Dany and Tyrion. I think Jon might have some part of that when he comes back from the dead. Maybe not wrestling with his worst self, but wrestling with the kind of inhuman post-death part self of him, just the consequences of, of having been through that process. Um Ultimately, like I said, I think a lot of the story is about colliding this kind of cosmic core elements with more traditional high fantasy elements and seeing how they intermix. So I think ultimately they're gonna all pull themselves back, the kind of the main characters, and you know do the right thing at the end. But I definitely think Brand's arc is in large part about getting really close to the specific cosmic core elements of the story. So I think he's definitely gonna keep pushing in this direction. There, there has to be you know, some kind of consequences and catharsis regarding what he's doing to Hodor. It's probably going to be something like the show, from what we've heard. Um, but I think, yeah, a lot of it is the the same themes of humanity kind of meddling with these powers and realizing they can't fully control them and end up being controlled by them. Um, I think, again, as, as far as Endgame goes, I think Bran is ultimately going to be a, a much more heroic figure. But I think part of what's gonna make that powerful is that he's also got these these crazy imageries and themes going on in his story. So you got that kind of that back and forth where he he wants to be a knight, but he's got the powers of something completely different.
1: Yeah, I think he'll get that glimpse behind the curtain, sort of already has, it, but it won't break him. Uh, he's already broken. Ah.
0: I'll be here all week. <laughs> I think that's that's the kind of the world cold hands and blood raven work within is that they too are among are now among these these creatures behind the scenes, these uh, the the age of uh, gods and monsters. You know, that's that's what's kind of going on with, with both those characters. And then so the what makes it interesting is then you've got Bran as our POV, who's on this very traditional hero's journey, and he is to reconcile those kind of two narrative strands. How am I the hero if these are the characters I'm interacting with and dealing with? And I think that's a really powerful struggle for him. Absolutely. That's, I mean, we're already kind of seeing that with Dani and her dragons. Like, she's not able to control them, not able to kind of uh, temper them. These, for her, they've come to rec- represent the worst side of herself, the violent side that she doesn't really want to unleash. You know, I think the key question how that plays out is what, what Dragonbinder does and if it works and to what extent that it works. Uh, I think that could be an example of trying to control these powers in a way that doesn't work at all for the benefit of humanity. But yeah, I think a lot of the there's definitely some cosmic horror elements to that, especially when he gets like the end of Quentin's story, and the dragons just appear as these monsters beyond reckoning that kind of destroy his quest. For Dani, it's almost kind of more like mundane, like it's just dealing with a rambunctious pet that she doesn't really know how to control. <laughs> um, but I think it's the, the stakes are going to only get more dramatic in terms of how you use the dragons because they've you know they're they've been used a couple times up to this point, but mostly they're just waiting in reserve to to use against the others. So it's it's going to be interesting to see where our dragon riders are in terms of their overall arc and what that means in terms of how they use the dragons. I think that's going to be definitely a huge tension.
1: Certainly in the Lovecraft mythos, we hear of gods fighting each other in the distant, distant, vast, distant past. Maybe Vigentillion again. Uh, so, yeah, others versus dragons is kind of along those lines.
0: There, there is that kind of intimate aspect to some of Lovecraft's stories where it's also about, like, kind of the evils humans do when when, when pushed to the limit. Um, and I, I do think it it, it uh, becomes cosmic correlated because it's brand story and because he's, you know, warging and having these visions at the same time you have these evocations of cannibalism across the entirety of Dance with Dragons, actually. There's yeah. multiple instances of cannibalism throughout that book. But yeah, I definitely think that's part of it. You have you mentioned the theory that uh, the the pork that Cold Hands feeds Bran and Company in Dance with Dragons is not pork at all, because of course not, because they're wandering through a wintry wasteland in which all the people are gone. There's no way he'd find a pig. No
1: one would have left that pig behind. Everyone exactly. Starving, so you know. he's
0: he's pretty clearly feeding them the Night's Watch Rangers. But the, the you know he with him and Martin Wright, he transitions from Bran as Summer eating the bodies. To Bran waking up and smelling the meat that Cold Hands is cooking. So there's this intense, like, synesthetic kind of transition moment. And yeah, that does remind me a lot of, a lot of cosmic horror, how it kind of is really gets at the core of it rooted in your senses and just the kind of the beholding of the thing. And, uh, that's something that, you know, Bran, Bran has to deal with like you know just this again seeing the horrible truth is such a huge part of of Bran's story I mean it's a huge part of the whole story but Bran's specifically in terms of the magical visions that he has to deal with in terms of recognizing the import of what he's seeing um and the, the added extra dimension to it is the sad is that he's a little kid who you know just wants to go home and be with his family which uh kind of adds, that again, that fantasy element to the Lovecraftian horror, that, you know, the, the visions and the tropes are rooted in Lovecraft, but the overall story arc is traditional fantasy. His, so youth, might, uh,
1: his youth might actually help his sanity a little, you know,
0: That's good. <laughs> because... Not understanding what you're seeing could actually be very helpful. Yeah, yeah
1: it might actually kind of happen to work for him a little bit. Two last comments. Um, maybe Coldhand should have uh, said it was crow meat. Ayo. <laughs> and... yes and i won't be here all the week um and um
0: not i mean for me the white walkers are much more kind of a a riff off like kind of evil fairies from english and irish mythology that kind of filtered into high fantasy and i think he's specifically drawing a lot from terry pratchett's elves there's a lot of comparisons there um so i think that i think that's where they more come from in terms of their general kind of look and uh, actions of the others But I think in terms of tone And how like how they feel in the narrative I think that is strongly influenced by Lovecraft
1: I agree Okay, um, I'm Aziz from the History of Westeros podcast We never introduced ourselves, so uh, we'll do that now Exactly,
0: and I'm Emmett Booth I go by Port Quentin on the internets
1: And we recently did an episode on Euron And Port Quentin was our guest so That was a lot of fun, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Over two hours it. of euron goodness So uh, check that out if you haven't And thanks for coming